Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, Tyler, I'm excited today. We're going to go to the great state of Rhode Island, a state I have never been to. You know, the word great sometimes refers to size. Ah, yes. But in when we're talking about states... It's irrespective of the <laughs> acreage. That's right. The surface area. Geographically not great. Geographically, one of the small, if not the smallest, is well, Hawaii. Gonna, we'll find out. We're going to find out here in a little bit. Uh, but a fascinating state, a wonderful coastal state. Uh, Providence is a beautiful coastal city. We've been tracking so much of what's been going on there uh, on yeah, the like shoreline that. of Providence, planning for sea level rise. Um and our guest today is going to take us on yeah. a little tour. We are going to go to Rhode Island. We have on the show today Jennifer McCann. And Jennifer is the Director of U.S. Coastal Programs at the University of Rhode Island's Coastal Resources Center. She is also the uh, Extension Director for the Rhode Island Sea Grant Program, which is a great program all around the country, Sea Grant. Uh, part of our sort of land grant system. So, you know, Jennifer McCann is going to be great. It's going to be great. Really looking forward to this trip up to Rhode Island. We're all hunkered down, but here on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, we can travel to uh, shorelines around and today to Rhode Island. But before we do it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the thedunesciencegroup.com. Well, Jennifer McCann, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. What a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. You know, the elephant in the room here, because we're all working at home or more and more Americans every hour seem to be uh, working at home because of the coronavirus. Um, you know, tell us what how it's affected you. I understand you're, you're we're recording this uh, from your home and not from the university. Correct. Uh, my daughter was on a, a study abroad program in Italy, so she came back on March 6th. So we are on day 12 of self-isolation and um, all of my colleagues at 
right at URI are also working from home, um, doing our part to um, buy local. Yeah, it certainly is a crazy time. And, uh, you know, between watching the news and, and just trying to settle into what life is like, kind of hunkered down in our homes, uh, we definitely want to make sure that we're having the coastal uh, conversation continues. And um, so, Jen, we're, we're absolutely stoked to have you on today. And uh, as we talked about before, as we were setting up this show, there's some really exciting things happening on uh, the Rhode Island uh, shoreline. Why don't right. you take us through and do a little tour for our audience? You know, many of us haven't spent much time there. What What's it like there, the Rhode Island shoreline? Well, um, I, w- I will say our, our motto here, we are the ocean state. And, uh, and so all of us are probably at least um, 20 minutes from from any body of water, whether it be the ocean or, or near Gansett Bay or the salt ponds um, 20, in South County. 20 minutes? If that. Wow. Okay, keep going. So, <laughs> however, we also have um, probably uh, Dunkin' Donuts um, every, um, every block because uh, we, we love our Dunkin' Donuts here. And um, we also don't like to travel that far. Uh, we have, because we're surrounded by uh, so much water, uh, we have many bridges. Uh, and it's very hard sometimes to get Rhode Islanders to um, cross bridges to come to meetings. There's, there's no need to. There's no need to go um, even 20 minutes or 30 minutes away. Uh, there's a joke. If you go that far, you need an overnight bag. So. Um, Many Rhode Islanders, um, if they leave after school, they they come back because we are very connected here. Um, I'm sure you've heard of the um, the Kevin Bacon seven degrees of separation in Rhode Island. It's it's three degrees of separation. We all um, directly or indirectly know each other. Uh, we know our federal delegates. We um, we see our our representatives and our our leaders in the supermarket. So uh, our kids go to school together. So um, what's nice about being, a, a, we are the second most densely populated in the, st- in the country, state in the country, um, and we're very connected. Uh, so which, which makes it a wonderful place um, to live, work and play. I really, I'm really feeling that. And I have to say, I'm picking up some New England vibes here. Would would you describe I I real you know sandwiched between Massachusetts and Connecticut? Uh, are we in New England in Connecticut or excuse me in Rhode Island? Oh, you are. We're definitely you're definitely in New England. Here uh, we have uh, you mentioned Providence. We also have these. I mean, we we have Newport, Rhode Island, which is the sailing capital of the world, and oh, really? um, lots of of New England. Uh, character and culture there. Uh, you have, you know, many people don't know this. Um, Rhode Island's full name is Rhode Island and the Providence Plantations. We have the longest name in the um, of all the states. And that's because, um, you know, we have a long history of, uh, of, of a long history uh, 
you know, both within commerce and the, the blue economy and the maritime economy. Um, we're all, yes. So we have a long history here. We're one of the, the 13 colonies as well. 13 original. Is, is Rhode Island the smallest state in America in size? We are the smallest state. Okay. Yes. Kind of, I mean, th- and one of the first ones where people landed, right? I mean, you kind of get this feeling that when the fir- people first got there, they didn't really realize how big the continent was. So when they were carving out the first states, they were thinking. And when they got past the Mississippi and they realized it went for 3,000 more miles, <laughs> they started making big, chunky states because, yeah. you know, if you drew them small, We'd right. have the, you know, the United States would be 150 states. But Certainly the Westerners were, you we, know. We it, gobbled it up. We gobbled it up well, pretty quick. That's right. And, well, Roger Williams, who's our founder here in Rhode Island, was um, was told to leave Massachusetts because of his religious beliefs. Kicked so he, he um, came to Rhode Island on that, uh, that premise and... Uh, we are known in Rhode Island for our religious freedom. We have the first synagogue uh, here in Rhode Island. Uh, so we, we're, we're very proud here in Rhode Island um, for our independence and um, accept ability to accept others. That is a hallmark of, of America, I would think. Sometimes yep. we forget it from time to time, but I think one of the founding principles, uh, in comparison, Tyler, I don't know if you know the stats on this, the dimensions of the state, this is in Wikipedia, you know, 48 yeah. miles long, 48, which is not as wide as Houston. Yeah. And 37 miles wide. The state is 1,214 square miles in size. Correct. It's a, it's a cutie. <laughs> <laughs> It is, and, and we a, have and, more water. We actually have more water than we have land. Yeah. So I, here's what I'm. A couple of just observations that it, begin. We pulled out the electron microscope. We did, and we took close like four. <laughs> there's four. There's four counties in in the state. All four are coastal, um, which I, I would imagine politically, the state is incredibly sensitive to coastal and marine issues because it, you know as it has, particularly it has island in it yes and what is rhode island i mean wh- okay so uh as i mentioned the 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 name of rhode island is or the official name is rhode island and the providence plantations and actually rhode island was um and is the an island called aquidneck island which is where hmm. Uh, Newport, Middletown, uh, and Portsmouth, Rhode Island, are um, in within Narragansett Bay, and the Navy has a significant presence there as well. And so, originally, that was Rhode Island, and the Providence Plantations were over on the other side of the bay, um, where I am, uh, you know, where Narragansett is, or in South County is, and we were, um, and so that is where we got our name. And, hmm. and so Rhode Island really is a Quidnick Island. And um, several years ago, I know the communities in Rhode Island were um, called up from, uh, I forgot what department in, in Washington, DC to say, look, the only place where it says Rhode Island is on your island. Is it okay if we leave it there? Uh, so um, as opposed to a Quidnick Island. Right. So 
uh, again, that was that's really where Rhode Island started, okay. um, and then it's expanded. So, well, in fact, I, it was probably smaller than your <laughs> um, a while well, back. You, I, I've got it. Could you imagine how many more kids would have had trouble in elementary school in America if they had to in the capitals in the states test to spell equidnik? I mean, Rhode Island. Oh, I thank God, you know. I mean, whoever the foresight here <laughs> that. It could have it could have, you know, really harmed the academic future of many, many children. That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, we have places that are Winnesquatucket and Narragansett and Pawtucket. Um, so there, we, we've taken a lot of the uh, Native American names uh, because, you know, this was a place where Native Americans were the Narragansetts and the Wampanoags and paw means power. So water power. So that's why we have Pawtucket and Patuxet River, uh, because there was a lot of power, water power here. And of oh, course, that is a direct link to our industrial revolution, where, of, of course, we're the birthplace of, in, of the industrial revolution with um, Samuel Slater and um, creating manufacturing and um, textile mills and whatnot um, here in New England. So although we are small, we are mighty, and um, and leaders on a lot of uh, different issues, especially related to our coasts and oceans. Thank you for that segue, because uh, let's do uh, uh, Jennifer talk about the specific, say, broad issues, uh, coastal issues that you work with at the Coastal Resources Center at the University of Rhode Island and in your capacity in Rhode Island Sea Grant. What are the top three issues of interest or concern or pride on the Rhode Island shoreline? So uh, at URI, we are, we are a state university. And although we are, um, you know, clearly our priorities are, are teaching the next generation of, of um, Rhode Islanders and, and, and others within the United States, um, but also where we, we really pride ourselves in public service and my organization, the Coastal Resources Center, which is located in at the Graduate School of Oceanography, are, part of our mission is to um, ensure that we're providing sound science and and good decision, um, good expertise, best management practices to people, whether they're in Rhode Island or or in the world, to make good decisions about our coasts and oceans, and um, both. Sea Grant, Rhode Island Sea Grant and CRC have been around for almost 50 years now. Um, so the issues that we have focused on, although focused specifically on coasts and oceans, have changed over the years. Uh, however, one issue that's been really important um, for, I would say, over 25 years is the whole issue of coastal resiliency and climate change. Uh, so we have people on our team who have um, worked on this topic, helping municipalities, the states, other countries to respond to that issue of um, sea level rise. According to our, our research, um, in 20, you know, Rhode Island is expected to have at least 10 feet of sea level rise by 2100. So that's a huge issue as far as providing the tools and techniques and information um, for people in Rhode Island and again around the world. Um, another topic where we're very um, involved in is the whole issue of food security, in um, particular, 
uh, aquaculture and um, and encouraging the appropriate development of, of aquaculture in Rhode Island um, so that uh, it, it, it contributes not only to tourism and recreation, people love our oysters, um, but also to um, feeding, feeding people in Rhode Island, whether it be, again, through aquaculture or um, wild harvest, so commercial fishing. And then I would say the third one is sustainable and renewable energy. Uh, our governor um, just declared um, that by 2030, 100% of our um, electricity was going to be coming from renewable energy. And uh, a good chunk of that, it, it will likely be coming from offshore wind. So um, clearly um, for all of these issues, there's conflict, there's science, there's perception. And so our team in particular are focusing primarily on those three topics to um, bring the best available science to the table, as well as lessons learned from other places, as well as a place where um, people can come together with diverse concerns and issues and, and talk things out so that we can find solutions that are, are good for the people of Rhode Island and our country. Jen, great run through there. And I can't help but uh, think as, as you ticked through those priority areas, and also as we discussed kind of the history and geography of the state, that this is perhaps one of the most coastally, there's just a real serious waterfront identity here in Rhode yeah. Island. Uh, it's been oh, industrial. Yeah. <laughs> can, you, can you characterize what that waterfront identity is today uh, for us? Sure. Um, just to back up a little bit in the 70s, um, before uh, any uh, state had co a coastal plan, you know, uh, people developed the way they wanted to develop all around the country and, and the world. Um, in the 70s, there was a possibility of uh, Rhode Island having a, um, an oil refinery in one of our communities and also um, an LNG facility, uh, potentially as well, in our bay. And so our governor at the time said, wait, wait, hold off on this. We need to um, think about this and how that type of development is going to affect the people of Rhode Island. And is that the kind of development that we want in Rhode Island? And so our governor came to the university and asked, can um, can can somebody help me, URI? Can you provide us with science? Can you provide us with proactive planning so that we're designing our coasts as opposed to um, just allowing any kind of development take place? What, uh, let me so, just quit very quickly. Yeah. Can you say what year this is happening and then keep going? Uh, this is in the, in the early 70s. Okay. Uh, this is in the early 70s when this started happening. And so, um, and this is why my organization's the Coastal Resources Center and Rhode Island Sea Grant was, was born basically to provide that service to the state of Rhode Island. Um, before that, obviously we have a strong defense industry. The defense industry, the Navy um, has their war college here uh, because uh, because of our geology here, we have a very deep bay and they have 
um, are, are basically a, they, they test um, underwater, undersea uh, uh, sensors and technologies Sonar. under under our bay uh, because of the the because it's the it's so deep and the ge- the ge- geology allows that to happen. But because we were able in the seventies, we we messed up a few times, but we finally have gotten it right and are um, because of this proactive planning in the 70s and in the late 70s and early 80s, we were able to, we, we have these water classifications. So uh, for example, our ports are protected. Um, they're they're wa- water classification six. And so you can do okay, um, hold on a second developments. Thank you, Jennifer. But let me d- define that. Would you, um, when you say they're protected and the classification number six, water classification six, is that okay? Tell us what that means. Sure. So there are six uh, water classifications um, that our coastal program um, has uh, de- determined. And so water classification one is um, protected area. So a place where only open space is allowed. Okay. And, um, and, and then level two is more, okay, you can have low impact development. So you can have houses and residences. And so it goes all the way up to um, level six where, and that is where our, um, our working waterfronts, our, our ports and harbors are, um, are developed. And okay. because of this, um, and I'm sure you've seen this, um, in other coastal communities, but also in farmland. So I'm just going to revert to farms. So you have this beautiful farm, and then a community allows development to take place around the farm. And then, and the at first the houses love the farm, but then when the farmer starts spreading manure or um, or um, harvesting their crops in the more in the early morning, they start complaining about about that activity. It's the same thing along the coast when you have a, a, a port. And again, there's noise all the time taking place there. It's sometimes a little dirty there. Um, and so if a port in Rhode Island is in uh, a zone called, you know, six, which is protecting the working waterfront, gotcha. then someone can't build a resident or an industrial park next door and start complaining about that. Our gotcha. ports are protected. So this this early history of having an LNG plant and potentially a refinery located within the state uh, prompted some early coastal thinking and planning and got the University of Rhode Island on the front lines of that discussion. Um, I hope you don't mind, but in looking at your LinkedIn profile, uh, it seems you have been there from the beginning at the University of Rhode Island and in your job as director. Uh, is it fair? At 33 years. So this is getting close to the beginning. Well, I um, I have been at uh, the Coastal Resources Center for a little bit over than 20 years. I, I am a Rhode Islander, and I'm one of those Rhode Islanders that grew up on Narragansett Bay, and I left. I went to school um, in, in New Hampshire. and New Hampshire. Um, yep. I went far, huh? And I um, I worked overseas in Latin America for 15 years and in wow. Washington, D.C., And but realized uh, when I was around 30 that it was time to come home, and um, this is my place. And so um, now I get to work 
on Rhode Island issues, primarily and national issues. And I do it because I want this place um, to be here um, for my children. So um, there's a personal reason why I do the work that I do. Uh, Great. And, and, you know, and I I think that depth of experience and that that deep family connection to the state uh, makes me want to know better how the state is responding to the issues that you guys have identified. As you said, the first couple issues dealing with climate change and resiliency and uh, aquaculture, but I'm going to set that one aside for a minute, and offshore wind power in the directive by the state governor, uh, Gina, is it Raimondo? Is that how you pronounce her name? Uh, in Rhode Island, we say Raimondo. Raimondo, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but let's talk about this intensely coastal state with a military sure. presence and, as you said, the sailing capital of the world in uh, Newport and this sort of quaint New Englandy shoreline community uh, and and a resistance, at least to onshore oil, faci- I mean, uh, energy facilities in the history of oil and gas, in fact, sprang out of that. The whole planning process seems to coastal planning process. So along comes another big energy industry and a governor who has uh, mandated that, uh, boy, 100 percent of the power be renewable by a particular date. How are the coastal citizens of Rhode Island reacting to that uh, industrial, de- that industry developing and appearing on the shoreline? Well, like any new kid on the block, um, there's a lot of opinions about this. And uh, I just want to state up front the role of the Coastal Resources Center and URI and Rhode Island Sea Grant is to ensure that we have the appropriate growth of offshore renewable energy. Uh, We recognize that uh, due to climate change, uh, we need to take actions. Um, And we believe that the appropriate growth of offshore wind off of our coasts is necessary. Um, But again, the question is, is how do you do it? And um, another thing we're proud of is Rhode Island is the only state in the country that has an offshore wind farm off of our coast. And it's off of the coast of Block Island that provides um, 30 megawatts of energy. Um, And that's about um, uh, the amount of, uh, it provides energy for about 17,000 households in Rhode Island. And um, so when our governor, this was in 2017, uh, Governor Kachiri, said, I would like, I want to see offshore wind off of our coast. We are the Saudi Arabia of wind, they say, in the Northeast. Um, We went through a planning process similar to the one we talked about um, that happened in the 70s and 80s, where we proactively planned. We identified a location off of our shore that had the least amount of impact on our wildlife as well as um, on the resource users. So whether you're in recreation and tourism or commercial fishing, this was a location. Um, we called it the Renewable Energy Zone. And now this is where um, there's five turbines there, again, that provide about um, uh, energy to about 17,000 households. That was done right. And that was supported by the tribes, by commercial fishermen, by unions, 
by environmental organizations all standing shoulder to shoulder saying, because Rhode Island agreed to pro- process this in a, in a very transparent, science-based way, this is the way we should be citing wind turbines. Great. Let me, that, uh, let me, let me ask a couple questions on that. Uh, sure. That's a great story. Um, the hallmark of, of Sea Grant is this collaborative, all interests at the table process. It reflects good coastal management principles and the coastal management planning process. Absolutely. I'm not surprised that that was successful uh, if it's taken seriously. When you mentioned, though, you mentioned that there was established in that process this renewable energy zone, and that is a particularly powerful world word to use when you say zone. So there, does that mean, I, when I hear that, I thought, hmm, that means there's a designated boundary. It means that is a specified use of the submerged lands, the state-controlled submerged lands off of Rhode Island. Uh, what's the regulatory depth of that designation? Is this actually zoning the seabed? It, well, because it's in state waters, um, the seabed is managed by our state. And um, so it's it's very strong. I mean, clearly, uh, so Deepwater Wind was the developer. Clearly, they had to get permits and, and go through the, uh, uh, the, the regulatory process. Right. However, it was much more efficient because we had done all the work up front to determine exactly where they, this is uh, 13 square uh, miles of, of submerged water that they could, or land, where they could choose to put um, their turbines in that area. Um, so um, it, was sort of, it was sort of like, if you put your turbines in here, then the process is going to be streamlined and you're not going to, you probably won't go to court. I don't know if you're familiar with what happened um, with Cape Wind and off of Massachusetts um, several years ago, where obviously that was a failed um, process. Um, and, and I'm not saying they did anything wrong, but the process was not proactive or strategic. Yeah, Jen, I completely agree with that. And I'm struck. This has been an incredibly informative show already. Uh, we did learn a little bit about the Block Island wind farm and about the community engagement process that was undertaken but what you're teaching us about is this history of of the working waterfront in Rhode Island and I'm just interested in and in about these different designations of waterfront from one to six and just in in constructing that it it makes me think of the fact that you're already thinking about how various communities uh, rub up against other communities and um, I'm curious to know in the process now for this major uh, expansion of offshore wind, how uh, Rhode Island, which has a long history of uh, industrial, you know, doing major industrial projects on the waterfront, how is the planning process going? Are is there a uh, a backlash brewing right now, or do you think that this thing's going to go fairly smoothly? I know that there's so much money coming in. I mean, that's the thing is from an economic perspective and for a state with a long history of finding a way to uh, generate value from the shoreline, uh, it, it, it seems like it seems like this is going to work there. Oh, that well, I, there's been so much tension here. Um, 
and and so many opinions about the growth of offshore renewable energy. Uh, first of all, this this is an amazing uh, from from one perspective. This um, offshore renewable energy industry is creating a whole new supply chain for the state of Rhode Island and for the region. Uh, we need new workers. We need we need a, a, a workforce that is able to um, climb, maintain these these wind turbines, and that means you know climbing up to high areas, not being seasick, feeling comfortable out um, on on vessels for potentially days at a time. Um, to some degree, they're building upon our traditional maritime industry, where the where you know people use where are rigging boats, they're climbing masts. So, so to some degree, we have this capacity, but it's bringing in European com- companies and um, and professionals who are creating sensor sensors to put on the blades to help understand when does a blade need to maintain, for example. So again, it's creating this potentially this amazing new supply chain for the state of Rhode Island, which is is extremely exciting and it's encouraging innovation. So for example, uh, one of the the Danish uh, companies, Orsted, uh, just established their innovation hub here in Providence um, to stimulate innovation and investment in creativity. So that's very exciting. but then there's also the concern about, and, and, and I should also say it's it's also stimulating growth um, and a new uh, need at, uh, for our ports and harbors. So we have our ports, which are right now, they're just staging the, the construction of the turbines. But in the future, with the hundreds of wind turbines that will be developed off of our coast, it's possible that we're going to be creating new manufacturing jobs and factories um, within these ports. Um, to respond to that need. But then you have the issue of um, traditional activities out there, whether it be um, commercial fishing or um, recreation and tourism. Some people don't want to look at these things. Other people think they're beautiful. Uh, and so there's that tension. And then the other thing that's that a lot of our ecologists are concerned about, and as well as um, the people of Rhode Island, is... Uh, you know, right now we have five turbines. Imagine if there's a hundred, hundreds of turbines out there. How is this going to affect our natural resources? Right. So we have be, the right. I want to put some a frame around that this point you're going to make so that you can fill in the details of it. But sure. you've got 30 megawatts out there now. There are six towers. Uh, so those are five megawatt towers currently. Uh, tower uh, megawatt capacities have exceeded 12. Uh, so there's a chance to double the the power of these things depending on the size of the machine. But Governor uh, Gina Raimondo's call in March 2017, I think this is the latest, is 1,000 megawatts of clean energy power. And so if you think mm, six towers got us 30 and you start thinking how to get to 1,000, assuming it's all wind here, uh, we're talking about a big increase in the offshore infrastructure. What is that? Am I on the right track there? Is this why? Yeah, tell us there. So, um, first of all, not all of this renewable energy is going to be coming from wind. Um, And and so that's still a a big question. I would, I would, um, we also have just, or or in the past, let's say in this past year, uh, we have um, agreed to purchase uh, 
additional uh, energy from Deepwater Wind, from their Revolution Wind um, project, which will, uh, my understanding, it's about a quarter, it, it will be about a quarter of this will be coming from offshore wind. So it's okay. not all offshore wind. We are also depending on solar and other other sources of uh, renewable energy. So we're talking <laughs> about then that in the planning process and the question that Tyler and I are both interested in yeah. here is, you know, the governor has asked for a major increase above this 30 megawatt uh, facility block island one that's out there. Um, yeah. We're trying to get a feel for the conversation there and how your process is working in this offshore zoning and the community. And obviously tension is what I'm hearing. Yes. So there's lots of tension and, and uh, so, so again, talking a bit about the cumulative effects, uh, we're concerned, you know, there are people who are concerned about um, how this is going to affect our wildlife. So we have the right whale here, which is an endangered species up uh, along our coastline. And there is a concern that, you know, there's different phases in, in for wind farms. One is the construction phase, which is the loudest phase. You know, you're pile driving um, into the, the ocean bottom and that that noise, um, it really potentially ha- has a potential effect. Um, but then you and then you also have the operation of the the wind farm, which may be may um, may cause different sounds, less sounds, but also may have vibrations and also um, may affect the sediment um, at and the ocean bottom, um, the change of the habitats. So. Uh, which could potentially, which could potentially change the habitat completely. Um, for example, on the Block Island wind farm, if you if you look at videos on the the underwater part of the piling, there's tons of mussels there, um, and the mussels are being filtered by this pure, beautiful ocean water, and they're growing um, amazingly. And so, some people are saying, is this an opportunity to grow aquaculture? in a more effective way. So um, so there's lots of questions out there. Um, our team here at URI, our job, part of our job is to make sure that that information about changes in habitats and ecosystems and changes in noise. And then, and then you can't forget about the cable. So the energy has to come, go from the wind farm to the cable. And the proposal for many of these cables or some of these cables is to go right down near Gansett Bay. And there are questions about the effects of the electromagnetic fields. How does it affect the fish, for example? Um, some of our initial studies is that at least for, for one cable, it, there is impact. The Some species are attracted to the EMF. Some change their behavior a little bit. Um, and we're talking about feeding behavior or potentially reproductive behavior. But what happens when there's all of these cables? There's more, there's 15 lease blocks right now along our coastline. Um, what I like to say, it, it's sort of like on a, on a beautiful summer day, if your neighbor is mowing his lawn for about an hour, that's not an issue. But what happens if all your neighbors are mowing their lawn all weekend? How does that affect you? And so these are the questions that we are grappling with. We are bringing experts from Europe to help us understand what they've learned, but they also don't have all the answers either. So we're learning as we go. 
And I wouldn't expect them to have all the answers because what we are doing in effect, and I'm going to zoom way out here, <laughs> but uh, this is a this is a pan coastal observation. But what we are talking about is the expansion of the working waterfront out into the water, out into the sea. And uh, of course, the fishermen have been out there and the offshore uh, drillers have been out there for some time. But, it, you know, even with those incredibly important uh, cultures and economic pillars in, in the communities where they existed, what we are talking about now uh, in the face of climate change adaptivity, fisheries changing, the, the notion of more aquaculture, this is it's more industrialization offshore. And Jen, I think you are 100 percent correct that it is essential for coastal states, the the uh, the Sea Grant program, the, the scientists who are working in the universities around the American shoreline, including where you are in Rhode Island, to be guiding the policymakers here. Because if there's one thing we know about American history, when you put a uh, a profit motive uh, out in a natural area, people are going to find a way to get it and there will be unintended consequences for those actions. And we, re we will rely on our scientists here to guide us and inform us and help us collectively regulate. And I've got to say, I'll circle back again, how cool is it that Rhode Island's leading the way because they have a, a history of this going back to the, to the early 70s uh, when the state made a concerted effort to decide collectively what how do we want to treat our our water and our our land water interface they it was obviously a, an important part of the identity of the state jen do you have anything to say on that am i totally off base no you are right on target the only other thing i would say though is um we are depending on our scientists but we're also depending on our resource users as you can imagine for example, commercial fishermen are out there every, almost every day, and they're seeing the changes in um, from climate change and from pollution and whatnot. And they know their this ocean bottom better than anybody. Um, and so it's critical, you know. And and as you probably know, a lot of our commercial fishermen here are catching fish that are being managed by the Mid Atlantic because you know a lot of our fish are migrating northern um so uh so i think what's really important as we move forward is to ensure that our resource users um are just as, as at the table and are communicating their concerns and their issues and we listen to them because they're the ones that are seeing the change um up that's upfront and personal the, these changes um for them right uh, so it's really important for us to do that. Yeah. When the governor says, hey, I want to go uh, fully renewable by 2030, uh, the notion is that that is a step forward. And right. if if we do not adequately account for the impacts, it could be a step forward and it could be two steps back. So right. uh, it's it's important to get the benefit of the investment, which of course the public is heavily in on here, that we make sure that we're doing it the right way and accounting for all of the externalities that will be generated. 
And and just to add one more thing is uh, when we did the ocean special area management plan, the ocean SAMP to site the block up the first Block Island Wind Farm, is we set up a uh, a formal process where uh, we have a fisherman's advisory board and a habitat advisory board, and those two entities, because they were formally set up in our state waters, we have. Um, we have created a situation where those entities are also ha- play a significant role. They have a voice in um, the siting of the other wind farms that are in federal waters. Okay, and, so uh, so let's let's fill in a couple of small details here because sure. I want to jump to this expansion. Uh, discussion and the obviously uh, the process that you've got in place is already functioning. Um, is it just two quick questions? Are the new wind towers expected to be in state waters or are they going to be in federal waters or both? They will all be in federal waters okay, to so, date. Okay. To date, right now, they're in federal waters. Okay. And so this is for folks out there, and we've done a couple of discussions Our about valued this. listeners. Right. We're going to be we're talking here about the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management, BOEM, which is the federal agency and the lease tracks that they've identified off of the northeast coast, including much more than Rhode Island. But so we're in that territory as a Sea Grant, uh, the director of Sea Grant and as the head of this research and assistance, apparently you guys directly involved in the planning process. What's different about how this process is going to work in terms of siting? Compared to the Block Island siting process, which was management of state-owned submerged lands, which is controlled by the state of North Carolina, I mean, uh, Rhode Island, of course, and how this is going to work with our good friends at BOEM and the federal government. So uh, the Block Island Wind Farm, because it was in state waters, was the whole process was run by the state because... Um, all of these other lease bo- blocks are in federal waters. The process is led by the federal government. Right. And um, the state, Rhode Island, because of a, we, we put together, it's, I'm not going to go into it, it's called a, a geographic location description, which um, is a component. It, 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 pro- it provides Rhode Island with more influence over the process in federal waters. I'll just say that. Um, So Rhode Island actually has more formal influence over what happens in federal waters than any other state in the country because we set this up. Great. Let me let's go into a little bit of detail there. I know there's so you've got you've got some sort of offshore mapping use where some maybe areas you're comfortable with or things. I don't want to go too far there. But is the state do you have a state approved coastal management plan? And is federal consistency review, which is a state power to review federal decision makers that affect a state's coast, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, Are you using federal consistency? Is that part of this? And tell us about this influence over the. Yeah. Keep going on that. Right. Okay. so. um, So, yeah. So as we know, the coast coastal programs, it's a voluntary program. So states don't necessarily have to participate, but if they do, they get funding and they get something called federal consistency, which as you're explaining is an opportunity to, for a state to, as long as they can prove that there's an effect on um, uh, on their, whether it be their environment, their 
economics or cultural reasons, there's an effect on one of those aspects within federal waters, then they can have an influence over what takes place in federal waters. Rhode Island took that federal consistency process one step further, and that's what we call as a geographic geographic location description, uh-huh. which um, provides Rhode Island with a seat at the table. Okay. Let's put it that way. Um, more than any other state in the country. Okay, so how does it work? When, when, obviously, a little bit of an elevated, as you said, an extension of federal consistency review power that coastal states have. Uh, you guys went a step further. Teach me something there. What's different? Why? Uh, how does it work? What is this? What does this geographic system do? So, uh, normally, a coastal state would learn about something that was going on in their federal waters uh, by chance. Let's put it that way. Okay. With this GLD and, and the federal consistency, the process that Rhode Island did is now Rhode Island has to, is, is um, there's a requirement that Rhode Island either approves or disapproves an action. Okay. So they need to be informed and they need, they're at the table. I got um, So there's more, uh, influence and and in Rhode Island because the way we have this set up we have a fisherman's advisory board and a hab a habitat advisory board that advises CRMC our coastal program over their decisions right taking place in federal waters so yeah I'm, um, well I mean yeah. I, I think for the listeners out there and if you're on coastal news today you may have seen the story but the power of states to influence federal energy siting is real. Uh, it occurs by the consistency review of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission licensing that's involved here, the federal action that is uh, reviewed. The state of Oregon's coastal management program in the last month faced the uh, federal licensing decision for what's called Jordan Cove, which is a big LNG export facility planned for Coos Bay, Oregon, to distribute uh, natural gas from Canada in the mountain states, Montana, Idaho, out through the coast of Oregon. The state of Oregon's coastal management program folks uh, found that licensing decision inconsistent and ha- refused, to compl- refused to allow that permit to be issued to start the facility. Do you anticipate in this case um, that the state of Rhode Island may be in an adversarial posture with uh, the federal decision maker here, the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management, or do you feel like you're all getting along and this collaborative thing's going to work out and, and y'all are going to find a place to put these turbines that the governor wants? What's your, take a look down the road, Jennifer, tell us what, what you're expecting. So what I expect is that because of our federal consistency and GLD um, setup, that we will have more influence over where the turbines will go, how they will be monitored, and the whole process, including the um, the cable, um, and potentially mitigation um, options. And you you could, you've already seen that with I, I'm not sure if you followed the Vineyard Wind um, process. Yes, where um, our commercial fishermen there's and and. and this was a, a horrible process. It was it was a very difficult and, and hurtful process. But 
Um, in the end, it's possible that our commercial, because our commercial fishermen have more influence over the process because of what the state has set up, that that the siting will be more amenable to some of the issues of the commercial fishing industry. Can I ask, a, um, Jen, I just, I got to ask a follow on question too here. Sure. So uh, obviously Rhode Island, small but mighty. Uh, yes. Big federal influence. But come on, you've got a lot of projects going on. I know Massachusetts is in the game. New York's in the game. Uh, New Jersey, North Carolina. I mean, like everyone, Virginia, these, mm-hmm. the eastern seaboard all the way up to New England is leasing out space for these massive wind farms that will be offshore. And uh, there's only so much space there. I, I know there's a lot of ocean, but you don't, the, you don't want to go too far off. Uh, uh, we've talked before about uh, the, the, Peter, what's it called? Load loss when you transmit? Yeah, line load loss. Line load loss when you transmit a long way. So you don't want to do that. Then you lose a little power. Yeah, you can lose 20%. So uh, I'm curious. So are you fighting? Is, is Rhode Island duking it out with the other uh, states up there for, for space? And... You know, I know that there's an issue with the with the fishermen, um, but but moving beyond that, how's it going? I mean, because there's there are, there's a fishing industry more or less in all of these states, and I'm sure that every single site comes with some impact to fishing grounds. Um, and you know, it's it's a major. We we went from basically having one major commercial operator offshore, the fishermen, to now having two. And, you know, it's 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 like when you're the only child and then you have a little brother coming in. It's a it's a game changer. It's going to change the way that that mom and dad relate to you. Yeah. So, so how, how are you guys getting along with the other coastal states when it comes to these federal licensing and placement decisions? Is there a cooperation between the Sea Grant programs in Virginia, uh, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Maine on wind? Uh because there's one federal actor here. Boehm is the yeah. federal agency. Why wouldn't, like, why wouldn't uh, what, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and, I don't know, Connecticut band together? Yeah. I don't know. Well, I'm just tell, curious. Tell us about that, that, that interstate discussion. Okay. I, I, I will. Uh, just one thing, though. Uh, again, it's the commercial fishermen, but it's also, again, thinking about our cumulative effect. Okay? So it's not... I, I think we all, yeah. many people see this as a economic benefit and that we do need to um, construct offshore wind and depend on it um, for issues related to climate. But we also want to make sure that it's done. It's not shoved down our throat and it's done appropriately. And I'm not saying the industry right. is doesn't want that either, but we need to make sure that we are doing it with eyes wide open. And, and that's something that's really important. So um, as far as the regional um, part, there are, um, you know, uh, so I've attended, there's many, I've attended many meetings, um, you know, on this topic since 2007 to um, encourage that regional view of um, siting of wind farms and also distribution of the supply chain. I think um, a lot of the researchers, you know, uh, do see the value and the importance of of uh, 
taking away those political boundaries and, and again, considering the cumulative potential cumulative effects. Mm-hmm. Even of, when you say uh, multi-state cumulative effects, even. Exactly. Up and down the, the Atlantic, you know, the coastline, as you're saying, from Virginia, you know, North Carolina, all the way, Maryland, Delaware, you know, all the way up. And, and now the Gulf of Maine is up where Maine and Massachusetts and New Hampshire, they're also, um, there's no lease blocks as of yet, but they're considering them. So they're, they're looking to identify them. So, you know, obviously we have migrating fish, we have marine mammals, we have, you know, so, so from a, from that perspective, mm-hmm. I think um, there's an a- attempt, we need to do more, but there, we have the um, the Northeast Ocean Council, NROC, which is a, and, and you, there's one in the mid-Atlantic. So there are right. these regional ocean councils that are working hard to make sure that we're looking at this region as one ecosystem. Right. So um, created, so, created so, by the uh, Obama administration, the National Ocean Plan, I think it's called, but these regional councils, uh, I think they've gotten a little bit less... Uh, attention and support in the latest administration, but it's perfectly built for this kind of regional thinking you're talking about, Jen. Exactly. And it brings in federal agencies and states and whatnot. So Mm -hmm. on that level, um, and again, it was very strong during the Obama administration, um, that that is a, a positive thing and lots of good coordination both from statewide to federal entities to tribal and whatnot. Great. Um, from a supply chain um, um, compo- aspect to it, or economic, is I uh, we get a lot of it. We're getting a lot of advice from Europe, and um, as far as saying the the states need to coordinate more effectively. We need to work together to to see okay who has the best ports, who can create the blades, who can do the workforce and who can provide, you know, this widget and that widget for this big industry. Um, that's what our European colleagues are saying. Again, they've been in this um, and on this industry for a lot longer than we have. Yes. They what have. I see, what I see, however, is that although um, it's a competition and it's a, it's a it, again, it's this is business yep. and every state wants um wants as much business as we can, I'm being very honest here, um, as um, as much as we can. Yeah. And I'm not a private, <laughs> yeah, I'm not an economics expert or anything like that, so I don't, I'm not, um, but what I see is there's a lot of competition between, amongst all the states to be the hub. I, I will say Rhode Island is the only one that has a real offshore wind industry because we're the only ones with a wind farm. Again, we are mighty, um, and and we're. Um, but but again, with the new development, I, I'm our hope. Uh, they say, what is that saying? We are um, we're punching above our weight. Yes, class punching above right our weight. Now. Yes, uh, and we 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 are committed to doing that, but we're also committed to that again that proactive planning to ensure that. Um, this new industry is um, assisting, is, is, is being done sustainably and also um, and thinking about our, the future growth of our, of our whole state. 
It sounds like Muggsy Bogues. That's right. Like yeah. Muggsy Bogues, but punching <laughs> above your way. That's right. There the Saudi, the Saudi, beat him with speed. Currently, the Saudi Arabia of wind power. That's right. The Northeast. Uh, yep. Yep. You guys. So, but let's. This is what you're describing is absolutely the uh, to me uh, the track to go down, which is this: be proactive, think about the sites in advance, get to the table, bring everybody together, use the regional stuff. I mean, this is how this stuff gets done uh, well. And um, what I'm kind of curious about is that the competition issue the ability to collaborate amongst the states um and i think there's nothing to be apologetic about here or even consider it a a step out of line we're americans people in this country make money and that includes our good friends and the the orsted company which is a european company but we're all used to the fact that folks are going to hustle for dough the question is can they do it in a way that is least damaging when you're in these group discussions with the other states with the federal agencies and all of the players including the fishermen who are potentially have an economic benefit or detriment here depending on what happens uh does the economic competition thing come to the surface yes what does that yeah, sound like uh well, I think you go, well, it, again, it depends on what meetings you're talking about. I, I think, I, I do feel that that many of these um, offshore renewable energy companies want to do the right thing. I do believe that. Um, I do believe that they, they do see that, um, you know, climate change is happening and they are providing a, uh, a service. Uh, they're also in the business of making money. Uh, and so uh, a lot of the innovation, for example, that's being funded or, you know, they approach our university and they would like to see innovation, obviously, to, um, to reduce cost and, and impact. I think they do see that um, having less of an impact on um, the, res- the natural resources and also on resource users is an economic decision. Uh, a, a lot of some, so, so I, I will say that, um, it's just, I, I think as you're saying, there's, um, I think maybe everyone has the same five priorities. Maybe the order is a little different. Can I uh, follow up on that? Um, sure. I'm, I'm interested in the discussion of class on the shoreline and gentrification of the shoreline. So one of the things that we've observed everywhere on the American shoreline, but in particular, in New England, in Maine, in Massachusetts, and I'm sure in Rhode Island as well. Uh, Working waterfronts of yesteryear have turned into boutique vacation communities where uh, city dwellers uh, who work uh, in white collar professions have second homes, vacation homes, maybe they're Airbnb it, maybe they're small little businesses that pick up. We now know that Portland, Maine is like one of the best foodie cities in America. You know, those aren't working class people, folks, who are going and right. uh, buying all that fancy food. These are these are uh, high society uh, New Englanders and people from around the country who are traveling there. And um, what you're talking about in this economic opportunity is an opportunity for a working class waterfront com- com- uh, component where manufacturing is taking place and ships are being driven and fuel is being delivered and... Um, heavy machinery is being operated 
And uh, to me, if, as as a, a, someone who's a little younger, and I, I just think that this is an incredibly important part of the waterfront, whether it's in uh, California or Oregon or anywhere else where there's an old fishing community, uh, Maine, we talk about all the time, and um, in Rhode Island. So I would just love to get your thoughts on that component of it too. I, I don't want to go too far, but it seems to me like the fishing community, commercial fishing community, historically have, has occupied that kind of working class, the working class uh, side of things. And they have been pushed out by forces not, you know, well before the uh, gentrification, the gentrification of the shoreline. Exactly. And also just the fact that the fishing industry has aggregated. There's fewer boats. There's fewer captains. There's more regulation. Um, so I'm, I'm throwing kind of a heap of observation at you there, Jen. Yeah. But uh, what are your thoughts? So uh, we have a, a great program here in Rhode Island. It's called Real Jobs Rhode Island. And um, this program reaches out to um, many of our sectors, our business sectors, and asks them, you know, what what type of workforce do you need? So um, related to offshore renewable energy, they, they're funding um, the development of certificate programs for high school students to learn about how to drive a, a ship or how to, uh, again, um, work in a uh, in an environment that's that's like hundreds of feet above the the, the ocean. Um, they've also invested in. Again, we have a huge growing aquaculture industry here in Rhode Island. There's not enough people to work on the farms. So Real Jobs is working with the the the, with the aquaculture farms to establish, um, you know, to provide individuals with. The, the tools and the, the skills to work on the farms. Same with marine trades, same with composites, composites that build the blades. Mm -hmm. um, so, and the defense industry. So I think I think offshore wind, as you're suggesting, is, you know, again, they, they say I have, you know, a figure here that, you know, by 2050, 181,000 jobs will be created. This is from um, NREL, uh, part of DOE. Um, a, a figure there, basically, you know, so there's really lots of opportunities to create the jobs. Um, I think also uh, both trade jobs, you know, again, the unions are and the trade associations are very supportive of the growth of offshore renewable energy because they see um, they see that that there will be jobs there, and um, you know, we will need to create new jobs. Um, and, you know, we need more people to respond to the maintenance and the construction and operation of these uh, this within this new industry. Mm. Yeah, what the opportunities seem clear. Uh, uh, the governors all along the northeast shoreline have uh, focused attention, got the message and have all issued edicts uh, to uh, a expand offshore energy in every state in the northeast that's got a coast that I th can think of. So the opportunities are big. Um, the, there are potential risks and downfalls, but it sounds like, uh, Jen, that your uh, state and, and in collaboration with lots of others is taking a chance uh, and the opportunity to try to balance this stuff out in advance. And, and it's, 
It's what kind of Tyler and I talk about all the time when you're looking at coastal and shoreline issues around the country. It's always this balance. It's like, boy, we're going to get a deeper port. That's awesome. That means more cruise ships. Oh, wait a minute. We're going to wreck the reef. The trade-offs on energy, natural resources, particularly any of the trade-offs with the folks who make their living off the natural bounty of the shoreline. Um, This is the work of coastal management. This is what it's all about. This is why, you know, to just say why when you go on Coastal News Today, there's an energy tab, there's an advocacy tab, there's a tab for property and real estate and waterways. And the reason why is because you have to understand this broad landscape of interest to make good decisions. Sounds like that's what you've been doing for 26 years, Jen, at the University of Rhode Island. That's right. (laughs) Well, it's good work. And uh, the states that are at the forefront of this need to set a good pattern. They need to set a good standard. Uh, If you're able to work closely with the uh, federal partners out there, the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management, to get state considerations into these federal lease track decision making and the uh, execution of the projects within those federal waters, you'd be doing a service for the country. Everybody's going to have to get good at this. And maybe we're all going to look to the small but the mighty state of uh, Rhode Island when when, when we're trying to understand it. Well, I hope you do. Please come back. Uh, lady, <laughs> <laughs> I want to go to Rhode Island. I'm kind of embarrassed that I haven't been there. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Jennifer McCann. She is the director of U.S. Coastal Programs at the University of Rhode Island's Coastal Resources Center. She's also the extension director for the Sea Grant uh, program for the state of Rhode Island, a real professional, more than 25 years, firsthand experience in one of the best coastal states out there. Can't wait to get there, Jennifer. Uh, closing thoughts? We're, um, we are a small and mighty state, and uh, we are a living laboratory for a lot of other places, so we get to do things right, fast, and share them with others. Sounds really good. Thank you for sharing it with our audience on the American Shoreline podcast, and we uh, we look forward to getting an update. Absolutely. Great. Down Thank the road. You. Thank you. Take care. Yeah.